Acts chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Preaching is primary in the local church. Now, there's something that some preachers do. Uh, I'm not opposed to it. I'm going to ask us to do it in a moment, but uh, I've kind of shied away from it because I don't know, I think sometimes we do stuff because we always do it, and it just kind of loses meaning. I know that thought is there, but I went to the Azel football game uh, Friday night, and, you know, it was 97 degrees and this blaring sun sitting on aluminum bleachers, but um, everybody stood up to salute the flag of the United States of America, you know, and to sing the song, and pay their respects to their country. And I saw those people standing in that heat giving respect to their country. And, and maybe there's something to this, but maybe we should stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Give our attention and say, we honor God's Word. So I'd ask you to stand. We read two verses, and then we can return to our seats. But standing in honor of God's Word. Acts 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'll confess in the beginning that there is a bit of overkill in the Scripture references, and it made, it's not the best way to preach, I admit that, but I want us to take at least this one morning to be reminded of what I hope you already believe, and I hope that you already believe how important it is for there to be preaching in the local church. That seems odd to my brain, that anybody would think that it's not important, But I know the times we live in, and I know that many churches have made preaching a side issue more than the central issue. And so I hope that we can be encouraged as a church to love preaching, to expect preaching, to desire preaching, that it would really be in all that you do in the world, that at least you know when you come to church, you could hear God's Word proclaimed. And I I pray that'd be encouraging. I, I pray it would be a great blessing to you to know that That is the heart and truth of the ministry here at By the Word Baptist Church. And for introduction, very shortly, uh, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek here, but I I just want to say it. I could say a lot, but I want to at least say something in regards to the day we live in. But I, I personally would, if I have opportunity, I would challenge any church in the world to take their methods that they use in church into the public marketplace and see if they could offend anybody. How many lives, and it's an honest question, but how many lives would be genuinely changed, biblical conversion, by the use of Easter eggs? Exactly how many people are going to come under great conviction and under biblical repentance and faith in Christ because the church hid eggs in the park? How many people are going to be really threatened with the gospel through some drama presentation or some, hey, I know, we'll get some lawn chairs and we'll sit down and have a little talk 
Or we'll sing some contemporary songs from some godless group like Bethel or something. And we can pass out coffee and donuts. Matter of fact, we could enlarge the front lobby, if you will, and make it a Starbucks and maybe somehow. Do you honestly think that Joe Bob and Sue Ann in the world are going to be offended, confronted in any way by the gimmicks of Christianity? We challenge any church to take their methods to the public arena. Analyze the fruit that is produced. I would say it won't come out much better than the Red Cross. I would challenge any church, any individual to examine whether the methods you use individually have any effect within the world. We know for a fact in my text, just taking these first two verses, we know for a fact that the only method employed by the Spirit-filled apostle was preaching the Word of God. There is glaringly obvious things missing in verses 16 through 41. Like everything that a lot of churches in the world are doing is all missing, and we have here a man standing in the public arena preaching Christ from the Old Testament, and it rocks the whole world. That's how the church is birthed. That's how the church is sustained. How do we think the church is ever going to be healthy if we divorce ourselves from the primacy of preaching? I know it's a little comical, if you will, but what happens at Pentecost if Peter hides Easter eggs? I get it, they don't know Easter Bunny at that time, but what if he dresses up in a red suit and gives out candy like Santa Claus? Or better yet, how about he puts candy in his trunk and has trunk or treat? Do you think that they're going to be cut to the heart and say, men and brothers, what must we do to be saved? Or are they going to say, man, that was fun, I like free candy. This is my thesis, preaching is the means that God has ordained for the birth, the sustenance, and the health of the church. I don't believe there's a better way. I'm not looking for another way. I don't think there's anything else that the church ought to be centered on as a primacy other than the exposition of God's Word. This is the thing that makes the church healthy. All right, so there's my introduction I'm going to talk about preaching from these verses, and there's a lot of text you can follow, you can listen as we go through. You'll uh, trust that the Lord will make these things real to you. As we look at verse 14, let's talk about preaching. Number one, these will be real short, but I just, I mean, these simple truths, but we need to hear them. The person that's doing the preaching, what about this person? In this case, it's Peter. In other cases, it would be someone else. But we know this, he is a spirit-filled man of God. How do you know that? Last week's sermon, the spirit came, they were filled, Peter stands up as a spirit-filled man of God, and he opens his mouth and he preaches. I don't want to just pass by that too quickly. Not all men are called to preach. Not all men are spirit-filled. Not all men are set apart. God does this work in men for the purpose of the birth and sustenance and the health of his church. It's his prerogative. Note to self, in this text, 
You had men and women filled with the Spirit of God, but no woman stood up and preached this day, only Peter. Men of God, filled by the Spirit of God, to proclaim the Word of God. Servants of God to do their master's bidding, if you will. Those who are appointed to preach have lost all personal rights, and they're under the headship of Christ. He is their sovereign master, and he's the one who is over them, directs them, calls them, and issues them out to preach his word. Secondly, position from my text, position. I don't know where we got to drift. I do understand that Jesus sat down in the sense of the, the Sermon on the Mount. I get that. But you don't find that again, and you don't find that as the pattern. What you find is men stand up and declare God's word. Here in our text, Peter standing with the eleven. He stands up, he has something to say, he looks at his crowd, and he delivers the message that God has given him. I think there is a sense of sternness that comes with preaching. It's serious business. We're talking about eternity. I'm talking about souls who go to hell, souls who go to heaven, repentance, faith, all these great biblical theological terms and doctrines all through the Word of God. If that's what we're preaching, then get up and say something. Don't be a mamby-pamby and just go around with this and tell some goofy jokes or everybody will like you. Peter stood up and with a very stern face, he said, this is God's Word. Simple, clear, straightforward, balanced exposition of the Old Testament in the declaration of the gospel. The proclamation. I say to you, the preacher ought to have some logical sense. You ought to have something put together that you can track or you can follow. In Peter's proclamation, it's beautiful, and I just don't want you to miss it. Depending on how you count, there's at least 13 verses of Old Testament Scripture. Joel, Psalms, Psalms. About 13 verses. Then you get 11 verses of exposition, and you get one verse or two verses of application. 13 and 13, well balanced. Here's the Word of God. Here's the exposition. Here's the application. This is biblical preaching. A word an exposition, and an application. If you don't have that, you ain't preaching. Bold, I would say also about preaching. you got the person, you got his position, you got his proclamation, a balanced, logical approach. Bold, look again in your text. I don't want you to miss this. I got in a major argument about this in Jalisco, Mexico many years ago. But here in verse 14, he lifts up his voice. Just pause. You have to list your voice in order for you to be heard. Just let it go on record. If you're going to preach in the public square, you can say I'm yelling, you can say I'm hollering, but really, how do you expect anybody to hear if I don't lift my voice? What am I going to do? Go out to a crowd of thousands and go, do you people know Jesus? It don't work. The whole point is for the message to be heard. Lift your voice. And he says, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And then he says, give ear to my words. We're talking about preaching. Bold preaching. Four things in this preaching. He addresses them personally. Men of Judea. 
men of Judea. It's a personal address. He addresses them corporately, the entire crowd, all of you who are dwelling in Jerusalem, the whole crowd. He addresses them individually. He says, all of you in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, to you, to you. I I got in this long argument about how we shouldn't use the word you because it's offensive. I don't know whether it's offensive or not, but I'm preaching to you. This is the way preaching is. I'm not preaching to me. I did that all week. Now I'm preaching to you. And then fourthly, he addresses them admonishingly. He says what? Give ear to my words. Look, I'm talking to you. Listen to me. That's what Peter says. And In a real sense, the preacher grabs the attention of the hearer and says, listen. Why? Because I'm important? No. Has nothing to do with me. You need to listen because this is God's word and there's life in it for your soul. It's benefit for you. So listen attentively. Give your ear to this thing. You're not tracking with that? It works like this. It's football season, it's TV season, whatever, and it's just like this. You turn on the TV, you got your show on, and they're going to say something really important about Sepkus, and somebody's talking, and you say, be quiet, Sepkus is talking. I say that because I said that the other day. Be quiet, I want to hear. I'm giving my ears attention to what this man's saying. In preaching, everybody be quiet, I'm trying to hear what the preacher is saying to me. And so, don't disturb me. You don't want to listen, that's on you, but I need to hear the Word of God. And Peter challenges them to give ear to what he's saying. Now, biblical is a great loss. you got sermonettes for little short, I don't know what the book is, little short things, uh, daily devotional type preaching. This is not how Peter preaches. Sermonettes for Christianettes, something like that. There's some kind of phrase. Here's the sermon. We're going to do this later, but here's the sermon Peter preaches. You get an introduction in verse 14 and 15. You get the Old Testament text. You get exposition. You get Old Testament text in Psalms. You get exposition. You get Old Testament text again out of Psalms, and then you get the application and the result of the preaching. Look, when men stand in a pulpit... They ought to have a Bible. Look, I say it out loud. Don't stand in this pulpit with your goofy iPad and your little cell phone that you play on all the time. Bring a book and actually have read the book, memorize the text out of the book, know something about the book, give the sense and the meaning of the book, and stand in a pulpit, stand before the people, and declare, thus saith the Lord. It's preaching. That's what we do. You, you go watch a football game, you expect them to hit each other. You expect them to catch a ball. You expect them to win a game. You go to expect them to play. You come to church, you ought to expect preaching. And God forbid, one day you come in here and there's no preaching, there's joke telling in a drama, burn the place down. It should not be that way. Preaching should be primary. Now there's a precedent, a standard expectation in the early church and this is where we begin to get into some text. I'm just buzzing through these in Acts. I just want to set it before you. This is not a minor issue. It's a major issue. Standard expectation. Here's the things you can expect in preaching. Number one, I'm going to say enduring obstacles. 
If you preach God's Word expositionally in the manner that we have talked about, you will face obstacles as a preacher and as those who follow the truth of what is being preached. Acts 4.2, their preaching produced this. People were greatly annoyed. They were greatly annoyed. Why were they greatly annoyed? They were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus rose from the dead and it irritated people. Say, what do you think when you go out into the world and preach the gospel? You say, yeah, it's offensive and you're irritating people. What do you expect? It's always been that way. Or Acts 5.42, every day in the temple, house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. You can expect to endure obstacles. Number two, when the obstacles come, be empowered by the persecution. Persecution doesn't quench preaching. It should produce preaching. In Acts 8, 4, now those who were scattered. Imagine that because of the preaching of the gospel, you're kicked out of your home and you're run out of your city and you have this thing called the dispersion and you're dispersed all over the land. You see, you lost your job, you lost your house, you lost your fellowship, you lost all of your hobbies. Now you live over here and you live over there and you live over there. What do you do? Preach. Those who were scattered, I didn't know what else to do. They went about preaching the word. The dispersion did not kill the church, it spread the church. Number three, this standard expectation is exemplified in the whole book of Acts. This idea that preaching is primary. And we hear it in things like this. Acts 8.5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. He walks into Samaria like Jonah did to Nineveh and he just preached Christ. Acts 8.12, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news, the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized men and women. The result of preaching was conversion and baptism. Then you get Peter and John, Acts 8.25, they testified and spoke in the word of the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem. They returned preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. We're on our way home. We'll preach here and here and here and here. I know we say the same thing all the time, but does it work? Does it work? Why are you asking that? What is what you're doing producing? Does it work? It's the precedent of what we're supposed to be doing. Does it work? It's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of glorifying God. I remember Barry King saying that he preached that one time in that one church and nobody showed up. He preached his heart out and the whole place was empty. And then a little lady standing outside the church when he come out and she says, what are you doing in there? He said, I'm preaching. She said, there ain't nobody in there. And he said, I've discovered that the gospel is worthy to be preached even if nobody is there to hear it. Then Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8.35, Philip opened his mouth and he began with the scripture. He's he's told him the good news about Jesus. One-on-one, crowds, villages, towns, it's the expectation. Acts 8.40, Philip continues. Philip found himself in Azotus. And as he passed through, 
this place, this region. He preached the gospel. To who? To all the towns until he came to Caesarea. He just preached everywhere he went. Acts 9.20, Paul, upon the moment of conversion, his scales fall off his eyes, filled with the Spirit of God, and the text says, and immediately, immediately, he proclaimed Jesus. I'm converted. I want the world to know Christ. I'm going to talk about Christ. It's the expectation that is found. It's the precedent of all that is done in the church. Now think about the expectation of the early church. Now those were individuals preaching everywhere they went. But now the expectation in the early church. We go back to the beginning. We look at the source. So what was the expectation in the early days? Acts 14, 7. And there they continued to preach the gospel. That was what was expected. Acts 10, 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Acts 13, 5. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Acts 13, 32, we bring you good news. Acts 14, 15, we're also men with a like nature like you. We bring you good news that you should turn from vain things to serve the living God. Acts 14, 21, he preached the gospel of that city. He made many disciples, and then he returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Acts 15, 35, Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching, preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding God called us to preach the gospel to them as well. This is the expectation of the early church. Acts 17.3, explaining, approving that it's necessary for Christ to suffer, for Christ to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Acts 20, 25, I know that none of, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. I spent my whole life proclaiming this gospel here. Acts 18, 28, 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I understand that's a lot of verses. I understand I buzz through those really fast. But also know this, this was the expectation of the early church. Nobody's expecting anything different here except when they gather together that somebody's supposed to stand up, open a scroll or open a book, and they're supposed to read the text, and they're supposed to give the sense and the meaning for it because God has ordained this means as a way to feed my soul in order that I would be conformed into the image of Christ. All kinds of things happen when preaching happens. People repent. People are comforted, people are strengthened, people are edified, people, marriages are repaired, children that are rebellious become submissive. All kinds of things happen. Why? Because God ordained preaching for the ministry of the souls of the church. If you take preaching out, your church is dead spiritually. You say, where are you going to go during your week to get an hour-long exposition or 30-minute exposition anywhere in the world? He said, I didn't know. It's, we come to church and we gather in order that our souls can be well fed. That's the expectation. And I would just submit to you this morning an application. It ought to be our expectation 
And, you know, I go on a break every year for four or five weeks. I go to different churches, and I go to these places. And, and then that's the only thing. I walk in. All I want to know is, are you going to preach? It's hard to find a place where God's Word is the primacy of why the people meet. I would also say this to you. It's exemplified in Jesus. It's the expectation of the early church, but it's also, where'd they learn it from? They learned it from Christ. Think about Christ in these few passages. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. You know what he, you know what he preached? Gather together at three and we'll hide some Easter eggs and we'll have some candy in the trunk of our car. No, he never preached that nonsense. He never preached, do this and do that. No, no, no. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how Jesus preached. He, he preached repentance and faith. Mark 1.14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming of the kingdom of God. Luke 4.43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this very purpose. The Son of God in human flesh is sent for the purpose of preaching the kingdom of God. That's the example. Matthew 11.1, 1, when Jesus finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Mark 1, 38 and 39. Let us go to the next town that I may preach there, for that's why I came. And he went through all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Luke 8, 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming, bringing good news of the kingdom of God. Luke 20 and verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. This is Christ. This is the example. I look to Christ. I study Christ. I meditate upon Christ. And this is what I've discovered. He believed so much in the good news of his own gospel that he went everywhere and preached it. And he called people to repent of their sins and to believe on Christ. I ask us, I ask myself, how can we do less? Want to sit down and have some talks? You want some therapeutic counsel? Go watch Dr. Phil. This is a church, and at church, the Word of God is to be thundered. It's called preaching. It's what Jesus did. It's what the apostles did. It's what the early church did. And it's the only thing that will make a church healthy today. And it was expected in the life of Jesus. Think about this passage. Luke 4, verse 16. Listen closely to what it says. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. It's just what he does. He went in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Notice, he stood up. He stood up to read a text. This is Jesus. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolls the scroll. He finds the place where it's written, so it's laid out here on this desk before him as he's standing. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's reading from the Old Testament. And he says, because God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive and recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
He stands up, unrolls his scroll, reads his text, puts it there upon the people. He rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, and then he sits down, and all, every eye in the synagogue is fixed on him. And, and he began to say to them, today, what was said back there by Isaiah 750 years ago, it was all about me. Christ preached himself to the crowd that day. The expectation for the disciples. We expect Christ to preach. What about the disciples? I'll give you two verses. Matthew 10, 7. This is what he says. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, as you go, preach. As you go, preach. What do you want me to preach? Just preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just tell everybody in the world that God's kingdom is very near and you're either in it or out of it. Preach it like you mean it. Mark 16, he said to them, Go to all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So don't give me this nonsense that it's un- uncultural for us to preach at Azel Park or anywhere else out in the public when the king of the universe has commanded us to go out and to lift our voices and to proclaim Christ. Our master trumps everybody in the world. Well, well, it's offensive. Well, it don't work. Well, it rubs people the wrong way. That's not my business. My business is to be submissive to my master's business. And the last time I checked, Christians are ambassadors of the king and we're to deliver his message. And then if you want an exposition of preaching, I can say it not better than the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 1.17. Paul says it this way. Christ didn't send me to baptize. It's not my primary. Baptism is important. It's not my primary. He sent me to preach the gospel. He, he, he never told me to have eloquent wisdom, just sound like a great orator. He never told me that. The reason he didn't tell me that, because he didn't want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. He, you see, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. See, it's written, Old Testament, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God. That's the issue. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. To preach the gospel in the world is to look like a fool. It'll never work. That stuff doesn't accomplish anything. Oh, yeah? It's the way God saves people. For Jews demand a sign. Greeks want wisdom. (laughs) I tell you what we do. We preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to Jews. He's a folly to Gentiles. But, boy, for those who are called, they hear the message and they say, I love Christ. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Here's the wisdom of man. You want to minister to people? Set up your red booth tent and get you out some coffee and donuts and give away some clothes and tell everybody you love them and give, pay their rent for a couple of months, and maybe they'll get better. And everybody will like you because you gave away clothes and you gave away food and you had some candy in your trunk and everybody will think you're a great guy because you come down there and you did good things for them and nobody will get saved and they'll all go to hell. 
People aren't converted by that. Well, we're supposed to be nice. I didn't say don't be nice. I said don't remove yourself from the gospel. I think about previous days a lot. By, by the way, before I say that, what the world wants, what the world expects, has, or what has become culturally acceptable is not the decisive factor. Do you think preaching was culturally acceptable in their day? God has ordained exposition to be done for the salvation of the lost and the building of healthy churches. The truth is not affected by men who are stumbling blocks, nor by men who are fools. I'm not building a church for Saddleback Sam. I'm not going to do a survey of my community and say, what can I do to make this message palatable for the guys that live in the brick house over here and in the mobile house over here? That's not my business. My business is to take the Word of God and to proclaim the gospel of God that the kingdom of God would receive glory. Previously in history, the Reformation was a reality because of the preaching of men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox. That's the only reason there was a Reformation, is because there was preaching. In the Puritan days, the Puritans shook the world, still shaking the world through what they have written in the past. Men like John Owen, John Bunyan, Manton and Flavel, etc. They preached the gospel. They laid it out. Or even the Great Awakening was a reality. Why? Because Whitfield stood up and preached. Wesley preached. Edwards preached. They preached the gospel to the world. And there was a great awakening. It stirred, shook places. The preaching of the evangelists of the 19th century, like Moody and Spurgeon and others, shook the world and built churches. You know, think about history and people. And think about when the Puritans preached, they had eight to ten points in their sermon, and every point was massively long. And then in the Reformation, everybody talked about four-point sermons. And then in the generation after that, when Whitfield preached, they talked about three-point sermons. You've got to have a three-point sermon to have a sermon. So it went from ten to four to three, and now in most pulpits, there's no point. There's no point at all. We just go through the church motions and go home. It's a travesty. Preaching persuades people. Right? I want you to be moved. I want your life to be changed. I want you to take God's Word seriously. I'm not here to fill up space. I I want you to be affected. I, I don't mind if you're offended. I don't even mind if you get mad. I really don't even mind if you throw tomatoes at me. I just want to know that you've heard what's been said from God's Word, because if you've heard what's been said from God's Word, there's hope for you. In Acts 17, 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Acts 18, 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. I'm trying to persuade you. Look to Christ. Come to Christ. Love the preaching of the Word of God. Give your life to the church. Give your life to the things of God. Don't go after the world. Don't get wrapped up in all these things out there. Make Christ the primary to your life. I'm trying to persuade you. Go all in with Christ. Put in all of your chips and say, hell or high water, I'm with Jesus. I want you to believe that with all of your heart because that's the greatest thing that can happen in your life. Acts 19.8, he entered the synagogue for three months. He spoke boldly, 
reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts 26, 28, King Agrippa says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Yeah, he knew what Paul was doing. You're trying to get me converted. No kidding. I don't want you to go to hell. Acts 28, at the very end, 28, 23, imagine Paul. I don't know what the wimpy preachers would do today with their 10-minute sermons, but I know what Paul did. They pointed him a day. He came to his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, sunrise to sunset, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses, the prophets, all day long, trying to show them this is Christ. Some were convinced. Some. I don't know how many some is, but it's a few. Some were convinced by what he said. And others, they didn't believe a word of it. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. I preach in this pulpit. Some people are convinced. Others don't believe a word I'm saying. Same thing in the market. Some believe. Some don't believe. Some are convinced, some are not. The horizontal's not on us. The vertical's on us. God has commissioned us to take the gospel. Look, we're accountable in this church. You lose the pulpit, you lose the church. Now, the attendance may go up and the money may go up, but if you lose the pulpit, you lose the church. A couple of points of application the church, this may not be big for you, but it's, it's big a lot of places, but the church must have a man of God who's called to preach. The church must recognize the position of authority God has given the preacher. The church should know that the man of God is preaching to them. The church must wrestle with the content of what is preached. The church must learn to expect preaching and desire preaching. I've preached in churches that don't expect preaching. It's not pretty. The church cannot abandon or minimize the very thing God has ordained and used from the very beginning of the church age. The church should expect their pastor to seek to persuade them concerning the truth of the text. If I don't try to persuade you to the truth of my text, something's wrong with me. Well, that was point number one. And I read Puritans. No. These are extremely short. Point number two, the power of preaching. It confronts men where they are. That's what preaching does. It confronts them and it works down into their heart and soul. Later in the sermon, they were cut to the heart. Preaching is the means of conversion. The Spirit of God accompanies the Word of God and applies it to the heart of man and regenerates them that they would respond in faith to Christ. That's a supernatural miracle that you can't pull off. Only the Spirit of God. And so it's power. Point number three, the point of preaching. What's the point of preaching? To make Christ known. 
It's a softball. It's to make Christ known. To model obedience to the design of God. It's his, God's design to save people through preaching. So we model that. And you will notice in our text in the last week, the supernatural work of the Spirit, the Spirit's poured out, people are filled, men and women, all this happens in Acts 2. Do you realize that after this great supernatural act of the Spirit of God being poured out and these people being filled with the Spirit of God, that when you get to verse 14 through 41, we don't talk about the Spirit anymore? The pouring out and the filling of the Spirit empowered him to preach Christ. Not to meddle and get all lost in spirit things, but to preach Christ. Because the Spirit loves to exalt Christ. The point of preaching is to make known the sense and the meaning of the text. Move people to repent, believe the gospel. Manifest an ongoing disciplined presentation of preaching for the ongoing health of the church. This may not be a shocker to you, but I'm just telling you this is the, the truth in the world today. Do you know there are churches all over the world who have never gone through one book of the Bible in their entire lives from the pulpit? And I was in a conference in Arkansas. A dear friend of mine now, I call him every Sunday, I added him to my list. He's never preached through one book in the entire Bible. Never one time. And there's churches all over the place that have never gone through one book. Why? Because they don't have men of God that will work with the Word of God and exposit the text for year after year after year after year in order that their people can be trained in the things of God. It's hard work. It's difficult. Now, in conclusion, the point of preaching is this. In conclusion, are you all ready to leave? Everybody done? Here's the end. You study this book of Acts. I'm talking to you about preaching. There's at least 15 sermons in the book of Acts. At least 15, depending on how you count. This is what I know about gospel preaching. It has six points in his sermons, in all these sermons. And I'll just give you the points. Number one, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's what they preached. Jesus Christ is sinless, innocent, without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. He's the perfect Savior. Point number three, Jesus Christ died for sinners as a substitute. Point number four, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's alive. Number five, you, you must repent and believe the gospel. Why? Because of point number six. What's point number six? Christ will judge you. All 15 sermons. We need to know that. And so as a Christian, I come to the judgment seat of God and I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. As an unbeliever, you come before God in your own righteousness, which is filthy rags, and you'll be executed and thrown into hell for all of eternity. I don't want you to go to hell. I want you to spend eternity in hell. Repent and believe the gospel. I ask rhetorical questions to end And I say this in regards to preaching. How do you respond to this message? Ask yourself a few questions. Just just for a moment. Let's take just a a minute. Do you value preaching? 
Do you receive and apply truth when it is preached? If you don't care about preaching, what do you think the reason is? What do you not care about preaching? Why do you value other things rather than preaching? Do you prepare your heart for the preaching of the Word each week? Like last night, how much time did you pray to ask God to prepare your heart to receive the Word? Do do you read the text? Do you prepare? If you expect and love preaching, why would you not prepare? Even in the goofy world of sports, they prepare for the game. They do exercises and sweat and stuff and things out there in order they can play the game. If you love preaching, why would you not prepare? Why would you not read a text? Why would you not pray? Why would you not pray for the preacher? Pray for yourself. Pray for your own heart. Lord, soften me that I may receive the Word of God. What is more upsetting to you at church, the preaching or the lack thereof? And what about those of you who even to this moment still have not repented, have not believed, and you just refuse to be baptized? God speaks to you through the preaching of the gospel. I ask you, will you this day repent and believe Christ and be baptized for the glory of His great name? As Brother Jeff comes, I'll pray. Father in heaven, I pray this day that you would bring some boys and girls, men and women, to repentance and faith. And I pray that we as a church here at By the Word Baptist Church would increase our love for your word and the preaching of it, that you may be honored in all that we do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.